0: This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by HID Global, powering trusted identities of the world's people, places, and things. Visit them at HIDGlobal.com.
1: Sadly, I think you're correct. And we've already seen a lot of retail environments simply shutting down, boarding up their shops. And I think that we're going to see more of that. Unfortunately, I think we're going to see a continuation of the move. This will just be another excuse why shopping will move to the online version. The rabbi in the
2: hostage situation in North Texas credited his survival to the training that he got. So and you rarely hear that. And that's big news. I mean, he he lasted nine, 10 hours with a couple of his congregants.
3: So, so there's something very suicidal about those who carry out these types of attacks because they know that they are unlikely to survive.
0: Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. John Phillippe, CPP, PSp, is the vice president of strategic accounts at Guypo Solutions and the former global head of physical security for SAP and HSBC. Welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend.
1: Hey, thanks, Chuck. I appreciate you having me
0: on. Today, we're going to talk about flash robberies. Now, we're going to talk about the nuts and bolts of this from a security perspective and so on. It really deeply distresses me from a social contract perspective. This is not the social contract we come up with for people to behave. In our social contract, we allow, begrudgingly, crime. We know crime is part of a free society. We're going to put up with it. This is way beyond that to me. So let's start by defining flash robberies or mob robberies? How, how is this defined nowadays?
1: Yeah. So, you know, flash rob, as I like to call it, and you're right, it goes by other names. You can call it an organized retail crime or a flash mob robbery, but flash rob see, seems to capture it all. It's where you've got a large group of people that participate in, you know, what we traditionally know as a smash and grab in a retail environment during store business hours. Um, you know, we saw this really peak in November of 2020, especially Black Friday in particular, it got a lot of media coverage. Um, it looked like it was targeted just at high-end retailers. But when you really look under the sheets, um, you know, you've got over 30 retailers that, that have been hit, everybody from the, the high-end folks like like Louis Vuitton down to Home Depot, down to, you know, Walgreens and CVS. This is a pretty big phenomenon we're seeing and, and is, is a bit different from other threats that we've seen in the past.
0: Now, is it organized? It it would have the appearance or they maybe want us to s- think it has the appearance that this is a spontaneous, uh, hey, let's all send out a, a text to everybody. And if you want to show up and help us rob something, let's do it. I don't think that's what's going on. I think there's some organized crime behind this. What do you
1: think? Uh, there's, there's no question. So some of the confusion comes in because when we saw a lot of protests last year, um, there were Flash robberies that were spontaneous, but that is not the trend that we're seeing now. These are definitely organized. Oh, they're organized by, well, organized crime, a syndicated crime figures who are using apps and texting to bring together mobs of people who in some cases don't even know each other, um, but they can identify a place, they can provide tools and rent-a-cars, identify a time, and then they're offering criminals anywhere from $500 to $1,000 to grab as much as you can bring it back to the safe house and we'll deal with it from there. So technology is definitely playing a part in organizing this, making it easier to do. And technology obviously plays a part in making it a lot easier to move this sold mer- stolen merchandise out the door, whether it be eBay, Facebook marketplace, Amazon, that sort of thing, but so it it's is not, organized.
0: Yeah. So it's not the LA riots that I went through where, you know, people are opportunists and they're going to take this home, take their VCR home. This is, there's a head to this. What are we looking at? Are we looking at uh, traditional organized crime factions? Are these new popped-up techno mobs with technical crime background? New, new sort of gangs.
1: I think it's both. You know, the statistics really aren't in from law enforcement, and they holding a lot of this information close to the vest. But they have revealed that a lot of these are happening through established organized criminals. Um, unfortunately, because they get the media coverage as well as the social media coverage, we then are seeing kind of copycats that aren't organized, but see the success that's happening out there through the organized movement.
0: Tell me how much of this uh, encroaches upon the supply chain? Are they hitting supply chains this way, uh, the same way they're hitting retailers? Because I really worry about that supply chain. We start breaking that a little more and people are going to start going hungry. People don't get the supply chain is a super important component of our society.
1: Well, it is. And and that's that's a really good observation on your part. So the the restrictions in the supply chain are making products far more valuable. So that's contributing to this. But a newer trend that we're seeing this year is this kind of flash mob that's happening on freight train cargo robberies. I don't know if you've seen those, but there's been a number of incidents, a number of videos the media has, has published where trains are actually getting hit cracked open and flash robbery is happening of containers of the supply chain so this could become quite serious
0: yeah i think i just saw something with la and uh, a union is thinking of pulling out of la because of all this stuff you can you can't have a union railroad pull out of los angeles and not affect millions of people's lives let's talk about what retailers can do are we are we seeing a move back towards the uh, the pinkerton security guards of uh, the turn of the century where they protected your your industry and your manufacturing plant from uh, the looters. I mean, you know, th- this kind of sounds like we might have to go back to that temporarily because to your point, there's just not enough policemen. There was over a million and a half policemen when I was an officer back in the 80s. I think it's below, what, 800,000 now? What what happened? I mean, crime didn't go down That we lost so many policemen. So wh- what are we doing as a retail level to, to uh, kind of curtail some of this?
1: Yeah, let, let's chat about that. And I want to end with the guarding because this is there's a bit of debate on that particular measure. But there, there are things that the retail environment can do. And it starts with the protection of their customers and employees. That has to be top priority. So, you know, proper employee training related to, you know, situational awareness of the environment they're working in, be able, being able to recognize and report suspicious behavior. And then when something like this happens, being trained not to put themselves at harm while capturing information that may be relevant to the investigation. Even some really old tried and true measures, such as creating a retail environment um, that has crime prevention through environmental design principles built in, such as natural surveillance that creates a lot of witness protection, that's another potential measure. Um, The placement of, of products and the protection of those products is becoming Um, more scrutinized in terms of maybe not putting high value items at the front of the store. And we're seeing a lot more locking up of valuable items. The challenge there is that all of these security countermeasures are kind of counterintuitive to how the retail marketing teams work. They want the product at the front window to draw on the customer. They want lots of products out for them to touch. So some of the things that they can do to minimize the impact, um, aren't really that possible because it's it's counter to their marketing plan um and then there's there's we're seeing a lot more applications the use of audio and video analytics using artificial intelligence so you know video cameras are always a good deterrent but when you apply analytics where they can identify crowd congregation or high volume activity or even weapons detection that's a very proactive step as well as audio analytics that can be applied to identify glass breaks or gunshots or people screaming. Those are all proactive alerts that could be transitioned and forwarded to law enforcement for a quicker response time. Now I wanna end on the guards piece. And this is, this is an area, and, and I speak personally to this. I was the global head for one of the world's largest banks and we had a retail environment of branches and ATMs. And this is a decision that needs to be made at the board level of a company. So to introduce guards, especially armed guards, there's an acceptance, a potential risk appetite saying that we are willing to tolerate a potential shootout or violent confrontation in our space versus just suffering the loss of assets. So I'm not saying one way or the other, but I'm just saying introducing guards could be introducing risk of violence, risk of gunfire, things that really need to be scrutinized and assessed up front before making that decision.
0: Now, where do we think we're going with this, is that the new flavor of the day is going to keep going. You and I both know the thin blue line means that you know 10% of the population is bad. It always has been. All the infrastructure for law and order is built on that model. But if we get to 10, 15%, 20%, 40% of the people started acting badly, things are going to collapse. I mean, it seems to me that the bad guys understand that model. And there's nothing anybody's going to do about 200 people running into Macy's and stealing merchandise. There's nothing you can do about that. Absolutely nothing.
1: That's that's exactly right. Uh, I mean, we talk about countermeasures, whether they're guards, whether it's physical protection, whether it's electronic security. For this type of crime, all three have to be working hand in hand and working perfectly. So sadly, I think you're correct. And we've already seen a lot of retail environments simply shutting down, boarding up their shops. And I think that we're going to see more of that Unfortunately, I think we're going to see a continuation of the move. This will just be another excuse why shopping will move to the online version instead of the in-person version. Because, as he says, it's quite horrifying to the public. Now, that said, when the public gets upset, that's when our government officials get upset. And we are seeing um, some positive actions by government that may impact this.
0: At a tipping point, is this going to be the new... I don't know, just the new soup of the day, <laughs> the new crime that uh, we just have to rekey our models and change them all to try and combat. It seems like it's, like like we said earlier, it's not completely new, but it's mostly new. And uh, we may just have to rethink all our security and law enforcement models for this one.
1: There's no question. And that's how the industry works, right? Um, we come up with a solution to prevent crime, to protect citizens, and the criminals think of a new approach, And we put our hats back on and we come up with measures and we stop them and then they come up with something new. So I personally think this may be a flavor of the day that through governments, police departments working together, some new technologies coming out, and I want to talk about one in a second. I think that perhaps I hope to see this quell. I mean, we've already seen a significant decrease since uh, December of last year. As I mentioned, it peaked in November, but there's some interesting technologies that are, are being considered by manufacturers. And one in particular jumped out at me. So um, Stanley Black and Decker is working with retailers like Home Depot such that the tools that they make won't operate unless they go through the proper checkout procedure. And I could potentially see more and more of that for items or sadly, the, the potential use of what we used to use in banking, which was die packs in products that go out the door without going through the checkout. I think we may see more and more of that, unfortunately.
0: John Philippi thank you for coming on the show, my friend. Very good conversation. I, I like the flow. A lot of information you have there. And uh, I think with the people like GuyPost Solutions on the case, we're going to be okay in the
1: long run on this. All right. Really appreciate that, Chuck. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself out there, folks.
0: Michael Gipps, JDCPP, is a principal at Gibbs Insights and the former Chief Global Knowledge Officer for ASIS International. Michael Gipps, CPP, welcome back to Security Management Highlights, my friend.
2: Thanks, Chuck. Uh, I really enjoy being on the show. It's great to be back.
0: We're going to talk about houses of worship, security awareness training. Uh, you've done a case study, uh, and you're going to talk about how you apply these lessons learned from the Texas synagogue hostage situation. Walk us through how this uh, situation came up in your committee right after the Texas synagogue.
2: After. Texas, um, we hadn't seen really a hostage situation. We've seen active shooters come in and, you know, attack rabbis and and congregations, but we hadn't seen anything like this before. And there had been no no real training on hostage situations. So right now, everyone's asking at the synagogue, everyone's asking about active shooter training, about, about hostage training. And that stuff is all well and good, but... Like in most synagogues, and we're going to be doing that, but like most synagogues, we don't even necessarily execute on what we have. Um, There are far more likely things that will occur that, and and, and not talking about my synagogue in particular, but other synagogues, you know, it's much more likely that someone's going to have a heart attack um, than there's going to be an active shooter. It's much more likely that an estranged father is going to get a kid out of nursery school. And, you know, without, you know, who doesn't have, um, you know, custody rights, that's much more likely um, than, you know, an active shooter, of course, the active shooter or hostage, but of course, that's a lot more consequential, right? So everyone looks at that. Um, So these are sort of the things that are that are being discussed in the community.
0: So fair enough. I mean, I agree with you 100%. We're, we're gonna have a divorce case where somebody tries to take a kid, they're not supposed to, That's that happens all the time. Do you think if we could get people to the to the top level of our, our security plan, that they'd be more likely to carry out the lower level functions?
2: The, the interesting thing is just like every other house of worship, every other religious institution, there are different cultures of places. So while my synagogue is more left-leaning, there are other ones that are very right rightly, especially ones where Israelis are, um, you know, tend to go and or orthodox. And they, there are quite a few that have, and, and we benchmark against these others, they have really engaged security patrols. So they're wearing jackets that say the name of the synagogue. They're circling, they're, they're, they're doing, um, perimeter checks. They can block off the driveway because you're not allowed. lot for, religious Jews can't drive. So they have an extra perimeter. Whereas our synagogue is, um, it's, uh, not nearly as, um, rigorous about that. And we have a greeter program. So one of the things we do is, um, you know, we welcome people in the synagogue when they come in and there's, there's multiple purposes. You say, hello, you welcome them, but you also are our eyes and ears to see if anything is amiss. And we have a difficult problem getting greeters. As a matter of fact, I'm one of the only one of few greeters who wants to do the security aspect. Most of them feel uncomfortable doing it. Um, they say we're not trained security people. Um, and even don't even want to go through you know briefings on just basic things to look for we just want to welcome people to the community say hello you know tell them what services are going on where you know what kind of events um we don't want to have anything to do with i don't want to have to interdict anybody what if somebody comes in not dressed really you know not dressed appropriately they happen to be say a person that you wouldn't typically see in a synagogue and no one wants to go to that person and say, oh, hi, how are you And it's because they don't have the language. You know, they don't want to be accused of sort of being profiling. But some simple things like you give them the language to say, hey, you know, it's great to see you. I haven't met you before. So thank you so much for coming to our synagogue. Um, you know, tell me if I can help you. You know, are you here for something specific today or do you want to join or something like that? And um, there are ways to empower people. So just getting people comfortable with that sort of thing, giving them tools. Um, I find that in a lot of synagogues and a lot of houses of worship in general, people just don't know how to even do the basic things. Um, and that just takes a little training, a little drilling. I think that doing drills without without scare tactics, without, so that without disrupting somebody's day, without scaring anybody, um, and without putting someone on the spot. So what we're doing at our synagogue is we brought in a consultant who will be doing drills. So I helped him uh, over this past weekend create 10 or 15 common scenarios or, or not common, but potential scenarios. And so, for example, um, one of them is that a strange father comes into the um, daycare takes his child and we have police and off and security, but you can get out without passing them. So he gets out, you know, a different way. So, you know, what do the teachers do or a case where, um, um, there is bomb threats phoned in and the person has specific information and says, Oh, I wouldn't go into these rooms if I were you. And these people better, better, um, evacuate to this side or this street or whatever. So what do you do? Um and so what we're gonna do is use the staff, the congregants, um, the clergy, whoever you know makes sense, um, as the experts they are. So they know a lot more about what procedures would work and 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 what should be done and um what could work better. So we might say we might go to the secretary and say, okay, you get a a call. And it's threatened, you know, this bomb threat. And, you know, with the information that i just mentioned, they know specific locations. And okay, go, what do you do? And the person will probably say, Oh, you know, I don't know, you know, first, we'll see whether they even have, you know, a a piece of paper that says what to do in case of what questions to ask. Well, even if they don't, um, there are certain things you know, that they should know or people that they should contact. So we're going to go through and they'll say, okay, so, well, I would call this person. All right, go ahead, call them, you know, and we'll have told everyone in advance and then you know, we'll call that person and maybe, Oh, I don't have that person's number or the birth number change or that person's out of town. Now what? Okay. Now what do you do? And so we'll go through the process and through that we'll say, okay, does this make sense? Would it make sense to, to evacuate everybody in the school and there's different, you know, there's in the whole facility, there's a school, there are events going on, there's, you know, there's prayer services or whatever. So would it make sense to do that based on the information and to evacuate in the place that they told you to, which could be, you know, the worst possible thing to do because there might be an attack there. So we'll play out the different scenarios and then we'll find that there are basic things that um, cause you've done this in the past with, with other kinds of f- facilities, we'll find out that there are basic things that, that they didn't really had, hadn't thought about or, um, and one of the main things that I found in other drills is communication. No one knows, you know, who knows what, or, or, or you know, there may be processes that one person follows that the other person doesn't even know about. So, um, and then we, instead of sort of doing an aha to that person or, you know, you don't know the policies and procedures, you're doing it wrong. That's not it at all. We want to do stuff. We want them to use their experience and say, well, actually, no, it wouldn't make sense to um, move everyone into one area anyway, because the door, you know, the, the traffic flow doesn't work that way, you know, and why would you mix, you know, bring the kids all the way back through the synagogue past, you know, where bombs might be, you would, normally evacuate them to a certain area and there are police over here and we would have seen, you know, somebody put a bomb if, if, or, and we have control over a certain area. So we're not worried about evacuating to a different place, that sort of stuff where you work through them and use them as experts um, and, and, and sort of um, problem solve with them um, to come to, you know, a process that they can follow and that makes sense. And that that's of maximal security and benefit.
0: When I was a a police officer, on three separate occasions, I was shot at multiple times. And I literally could hear the bullets whizzing past me, right? Uh, Literally within inches of striking me. And the reason I'm alive, Michael, is because I had really good training. I went to Rio Honda Police Academy, considered one of the best academies in the country at the time. And we did role playing, just like you're talking about. Hey, pretend this happens. Go. Uh, you're the policeman. You're the agitator. You're the suspect. Uh, you're the citizen. And you just assume these roles and just let it play out. And it's very loose in a way. And, and the instructors are there to see how you acted, not to criticize, to your point, right? And it works. It exactly. works. And you know what? It, it can be fun. It can be fun, right? It really can be fun. And I think people will remember this. So what are your closing thoughts on on how far we've come and how far we have to go you know, unfortunately it seems that we have to have some major, major, major incident or multiple incidents for, for the culture to change. And when I say culture, I mean any culture about any subject, right? We're happy to be talking about security here. Uh, it's it's a sad statement that we have to have uh, X number of school shootings before people want to do training. Are, are are we getting are we getting to a point where people are starting to say, you know, we gotta do it?
2: Well, let's just say I was gonna I was gonna end with sort of a um you know, like, well, I'm not all that sure, you know, what we can do. But I actually have a hopeful note because if you recall, the rabbi in the hostage situation in North Texas credited his survival to the training that he got. So and you rarely hear that. And that's big news. I mean he he lasted nine, ten hours with a couple of his congregants and they got out largely because they knew how to talk to him, help um, sort of diffuse his anger made sure he didn't do anything. I would say that's a very positive that, you know, when people see those examples of training, saving lives, um, they're more, much more willing to do it.
0: Michael Gibbs, CPP, com. Thank you for joining us, my friend. As always, engaging and informational. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights.
2: Love your show. Keep up the great work.
0: Mr. Yves Passard is the Product Marketing Director for HID's Global Identity and Access Management Government business. Welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Hi, how are you? Today's topic is identity governance and its impact on physical security. A lot of my friends in the, quote, physical security world, when they hear words like governance, orchestration, compliance, many of them may think those are IT words. When HID Global is using the term identity governance, tell us what that means.
4: Yeah, it's uh, about having a policy-based uh, orchestration engine that lets you manage the user identity as well as their access controls and making sure you do that in a way that's uh, automated and replicable and that helps you meet your uh, regulatory and compliance requirements.
0: How is this different from identity and access management? It, it's There is a, a distinction, isn't there?
4: Yeah, there is identity and access management is going to be, you know, your, your best practice, your your baseline on how you you handle those things. But when it comes to looking at uh, governance, you wanna go, you wanna be able to go beyond um, in a way that uh, uh, not just about not just about implementing controls uh, that's gonna make sure that you do the right thing, but also how you document it and how how can you use that after. Leverage, leverage all of that in order to be able to pass uh, audits uh, to, and, and document how you comply with this, right? So it's, uh, it can encompass identity and access management, but with a wider scope. Uh, that's in large part helps you meet your, uh, your, your regula- regulation and your, your mandates that you have to comply with.
0: And what regulations, we're talking about, you know, SOX, HIPAA, TSA. I mean, it's all kinds of regulations that really, if people don't do this as a business you're talking about some serious fines and, and problems
4: it could uh, prevent you from uh, running your business you know uh, let's pick uh, let's pick the, the TSA example uh, if you if you don't meet those requirements you know at first uh, you're probably gonna get some fine but at some point if you don't get this right uh, you're just not gonna be allowed to to run your airport anymore and and the same thing goes uh, across uh, all different sectors uh, if you are if you're a defense contractor for example and uh, uh, you keep uh, not meeting those, those regulations, your government customer will stop uh, choosing you uh, at the next uh, RFP, right? And you won't get awarded that contract. So it truly comes to the core of being able to operate your business and you can't meet them, you know, first time, second time, you you know, you might be able to to get this right and have an opportunity to, to comply with them moving forward. But at some point, uh, uh, your customer will stop doing business with you, or you might not even be allowed to be in business. It's really, a quite complex environment that uh, that that you have to be uh, uh, in order to to be able to to continue doing business in that environment.
0: Talk to me a bit more about centralized management of identities and orchestration.
4: In a lot of those organizations, it's not one size fits all. You're gonna have different uh, different user population uh, that will have different uh, a regulatory requirement and um, having that orchestration that moves you through the, the the different state of your workflow. You know when you when you're enrolling your users, when you're when you're um, enrolling their identity, and then and then vetting them, and then finally giving them their their access with maybe a badge. It's it's a whole life cycle that you go through, and then of course you have to retire those those badge at some point when the the person leaves the organization. Uh, so the, the orchestration part is key because you will have different people um, accessing or servicing that identity throughout its lifecycle. and if you don't have that proper orchestration what's going to happen is uh you know some of those people will end up uh, um, falling through the cracks and and they're going to be wondering you know why is my access not there and when you have the orchestration you can make sure that uh, you don't lose uh, uh, you don't lose the status of where you're your user application are and you make sure that they can be um, attended for in a in a in a reasonable time frame and also you make sure that when there's a time frame that are coming with your regulation in terms of you know how long how long access has to be there or how long access has to be retired when nothing is happening on that account all the orchestration helps you automate those those processes make sure that you're still in compliance and make sure you still provide a good experience for your. Uh, for your um, uh, applicants as they get their identity, making sure that they don't have to wait too long uh, before they, they get provision. Let's
0: talk about policy engines uh, like the uh, HID Safe and tell me how this helps organizations comply.
4: Yeah, it helps comply in a few different places. Um, the first step is that it's going to automate all those different uh, workflows, uh, so that um, uh, you know you're, you're not using pen and paper anymore, or you're not using a doc solution, but you have a um, well old machinery that's going to help you move along the, the the process for all those applicants and all those identities. Um, it's going to help you ensure that the right person get access at the right time for the right reason. Uh, which is very often what's the at the core of those uh, uh, governance mandates. And then on top of that, um, you know of, often when you are under regulation or mandates, you're gonna have uh, regular audits, and that's gonna help you also uh, go through those edits much faster because you're gonna be able to um, uh, generate a record that that proves that your controls were applied and were well applied properly. So when it's time to document what you've been doing and the auditors pour through looking for evidence, you'll have that ready. You just need to generate it. And then you're good to go and you can pass your audit much uh, in a much more easy fashion than if you didn't have all those capabilities.
0: What are your closing thoughts on on governments, the state that we're in right now? Are we, are we moving to a place where this is gonna become standard? And certainly I would think using uh, HID safe would make it that way.
4: Yeah, I think that uh, we're going into a place where it's going to become best practice. I think it's still going to be uh, really dependent on your your industry. You know, some industries are going to be more security cautious than than others. Uh, but um, I think overall, that's really going to help you um, uh, provide. A, if you if you don't fall under uh, uh, such mandate or regulation, it's still going to be very valuable, or it's going to be seen as best practice in order to uh, provide the, uh, the, the proper security infrastructure you know there's been a, a lot of uh, um, a lot of focus around security over, over the past few years with all the data breach that are happening you know in, in a lot of places and one one of the uh, you know one of the weak points is uh, is identity governance right especially if you have a risk of having of, of insider threats and um, um, a solution like SAFE really helps you uh, uh, put best practice in place in a way that's uh, uh, automated and uh, and repeatable uh, and demonstrable uh, as well. So I think it's going to be really helpful to many organizations out there.
0: Mr. Yves-Massard, HID Global. We're talking about the HID SAFE enterprise, identity governance and its impact on physical security. Mr. Massard, thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you. Dr. Joshua Sinai is Professor of Practice, Intelligence, and Security Studies at the Capital University in Laurel, Maryland, where he leads the programs on these issues at the BS undergraduate, master's, and PhD levels. He's also a senior analyst at Touchstone Global. Dr. Joshua Sinai, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend.
3: It's a real privilege to be on your important show. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us because
0: this is an important topic we don't hear too much about it in the States, but it's a serious problem, it's, it's a large threat. Today's topic is assessing the use of edged weapons in terrorist attacks. Let's define what it means to use an edged weapon in a terrorist attack and why and why that's specifically a terrorist attack and not just a crime.
3: Right, what was especially interesting about the use of edged weapons, which consists of knives um, and, and and other um Kitchen like uh, devices is that um, they, they form a very important subset of um, terrorist tactics and weapons. And, and the reason is that, um, well, f- first, we, we need to probably define terrorism. Terrorism involves violence by sub state groups, such as um, group, organized groups or lone actors who use various types of violence to attack civilian. And the armed military and law enforcement, in order to uh, kill as many people as they can, cause as much physical damage, uh, spread anxiety and fear throughout society, in order to compel governments to give in to their demands. And terrorists, whether groups or lone actors, prefer to use firearms or improvised explosives to. Attack their targets, but in 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 especially in Western countries, it's difficult for groups or, or lone actors to acquire such weapons, to train in their use, and and to evade uh, potential detection that they may be uh, planning to resort to such um, weapons. It's easier for groups because of their uh, resources to acquire weapons and IEDs. Uh, for example, through the black market. But for lone actors, especially, it's difficult to acquire such firearms and and IEDs. So they've actually been encouraged by um, the larger groups that influence them, for example, ISIS or Al Qaeda or others, to resort to any types of weapons at their immediate disposal, including weapons that can be found in their kitchen, such as knives. And uh, another um, sort of popular weapon is the use of um, vehicle to ram into pedestrians, because th- these also are relatively easily uh, obtainable. But w- what's interesting about knives is that f- they are especially prevalent among l- lone actors in, in the US and other countries. And, and also sometimes they are used in combination with other weapons. For example, there was a case of someone um, at, at Ohio University who used his vehicle to ram into pedestrians and then he got out of the vehicles with a machete and proceeded to uh, try to stab as many people as he could. So it could either be used as a primary single weapon or in combination with with other weapons. And what's also interesting is that these have become, I mean, prevalent in in, in the U.S. by by lone actors, but in other countries where it's extremely difficult for lone actors to acquire weapons, such as in in the um, Palestinian Authority in in the West Bank, because there the, the weapons are usually acquired by groups but but there are times when lone actors, for various reasons, decide to carry out an attack either the day before or that day. So they will find a knife, usually in their kitchen, and then um, plan to carry out an attack. And and there are several advantages to using a an edged weapon in in an attack. One is that they usually don't arouse suspicion by by local law enforcement because you, you can hide them. Under a jacket and um, more easily approach a target who will not suspect that an, an an attack may be underway and then suddenly pull out the knife and and begin to, to try to stab um, law enforcement or, or 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 civilian as as quickly as they can. Um, they, they, they will usually get shot and, and killed and, and there are many videos of, of 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 these incidents where they someone will will pull out a knife try to attack. Someone, for example, in the old city of Jerusalem, uh, that they, they will approach border guards and, and try to stab them, and then they will be in, in immediately shot and killed. So it's a very interesting phenomenon that um, hasn't actually received as much media notice as they should because they, they usually don't end up killing a lot of people, just, just a few individuals, because uh, once they start stabbing someone, and if a policeman is nearby, they will then be, be shot and neutralized. So um, th- th- there are various measures that l- law enforcement and uh, public security and, and, and other people can take to mitigate such um, attacks. One is if if you notice someone in your immediate surrounding who may have become ideologically extremist and is and expresses a vengeful anger, then they will usually leak their intentions to those in, in their immediate uh, surroundings. Once this happens, those who know them should, should, should try to do something about it. One, one, one uh, preventative measure is to refer them to mental health counseling or other kind of counseling or, or to inform local law enforcement that someone is acting in a suspicious way and, and they need to be interviewed. What's also interesting about those who embark on launching edged weapon attacks is that they go through the same pre-incident um, trajectories into violence, where usually there will be something that will um, cause them to become aggrieved, some kind of trigger. It might be a, um, an ideological crisis that they're going through. They suddenly realize that their country may be engaging in a foreign policy that that um, is harming their ethnic community overseas, or, you um, personal crisis they might be going through a divorce or a professional crisis they might be fired from a position and so on. And then they will enter a phase called homicidal ideation, where they will begin to fantasize about taking revenge against their perceived um, target. And, and they usually at, at this stage um, begin to leak their violent intentions to those in their immediate surroundings. And then if their sense of agreement is strong enough, they will pass through what, what I called a, a threshold into, into violence. A, a, a tiny minority will then decide to do something about their sense of agreement and will begin to to plan some kind of attack against their um, target. They, they will be, begin to prepare for it. Now, in this case, because they won't be able to acquire a firearm or an IED explosive, they will turn to any weapon that's available to them, in in this case, a knife in their kitchen, and start to prepare to carry out an attack against their perceived target might be um, local law enforcement or, or a crowd of um, shoppers in a mall or, or a school, and and then they will start to approach the target. And all of these phases provide intervention points for those around them to notice that something suspicious is, is, is going on. So even though they may not be intending to um, shoot their um adversaries um they they will approach them with their um hidden knives and then take them out and then start to um stab as many people as they can so that's why it's very important for those who are who find themselves in a crowd of people to always be situationally aware that something might happen and, and to start t- um, taking um, preventative measures, such as just making sure that no one can suddenly um, thrust something at them. And so also what's interesting about use of edged weapons is that there are no incidents where any of them have actually been thrown at anyone. Because it's very difficult to to throw a knife at someone um, and with any great degree of accuracy so they will usually approach the target and then try to stab them as many times as they can
0: well you know something i find interesting about knife attacks and, and being a police officer I, i'm always aware of this it takes a lot of uh chutzpah right uh, it takes a lot of uh dedication to come with, at somebody with a knife in close contact with another human being. That's a different sort of psychological makeup than somebody that blows up a bomb, shoots you from across the room. These are different sort of people that commit to that close contact. Do you think we run the risk of of looking at knife attacks as not being as significant as bombs and bullets in terrorist attacks because it's not, you know, it's not uh, mass casualties as you stated earlier? But boy, it's a different sort of psychological makeup of the person that commits to this
3: sort of close contact, isn't it? Right. That's that's a very interesting point. Uh, the, 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 there is something that is especially different about these types of violent assailants, uh, because there, there's also something very suicidal about them. Because once they start stabbing someone, there's a greater likelihood that they are going to be shot and and killed by um, first responders such as a policeman or others, or or, or taken down. I don't think there are any incidents where uh, assailants who use knives in their attacks have been able to escape. From the scene of the incident. They're usually taken down by by someone.
0: Dr. Joshua Sinai, we've been speaking about assessing the use of edged weapons in terrorist attacks, uh, and we're learning that this is a different sort of terrorist and a different sort of profile. Very interesting stuff, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thanks. I really appreciate it. This episode of Security Management Highlights was brought to you by HID Global, powering trusted identities of the world's people, places, and things. Visit them at hidglobal.com.